0: amen well it's great to have you all here with us this morning god bless you and uh, welcome to uh, to faith bible church if you're visiting with us uh, we're especially glad you're here this morning thank you for uh taking time to come and worship with us here this morning you know there's an old french proverb that says a good meal ought to begin with hunger and uh, the same is true of our corporate worship here on sundays so uh, we need to come each week with a with a hunger to meet god and uh, to be filled and satisfied and so i pray that uh, this morning uh, that you've come hungry as uh, we meet God in worship and in His Word. And I pray that you'll be filled and you'll leave here this morning satisfied in Him. Um, our text for this morning is uh, Daniel chapter 3. If you want to take your Bible and turn there with me, we're in a series, an exposition of the book of Daniel. And uh, we've called this uh, The End Time and The Meantime. And our message this morning from Daniel chapter 3 is titled No Other God. And of course, Daniel chapter 3, if you know anything about uh, the book of Daniel, you know that this is a classic Bible story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And uh, all of us here probably know that story well, but uh, my prayer is this morning that we'll see that this is much more than just a thrilling story for children. So uh, to get our. bearings here this morning. Let me read the first seven verses of this chapter. Then I want to drop down and read verses 16 to 18. So that'll be our scripture reading for this morning. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits and its width six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasures, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image the king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the king but stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you're to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast in the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore at that time when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshiped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Let's go over to verse 16. Well, so reads God's inspired Word, and may He write that eternal Word on our hearts this morning. Some of you may know the name Tertullian from church history. Uh, Tertullian was a lawyer. He was born about A.D. 150, so about 120 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he lived in Carthage in North Africa. And he was converted to Christ uh, dramatically at about the age of 40. And became one of the luminaries in the early church. In fact, he was called the father of Latin Christianity. Um, He's called the founder of Western theology. Some of you may have heard that quote that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Well, that's a quote from uh, Tertullian. Um, In fact, he he coined the term Trinity uh, to describe God, the term that we use today. Um, He wrote a lot of things, but he wrote one very powerful treatise, and the title of that treatise was called On Idolatry and I actually read through it again this week. It's fairly brief. You can find it online. Just put in Tertullian on idolatry. But in that treatise, he answered a lot of practical questions about idolatry that believers faced being there in the Roman Empire, because believers had all kinds of questions, as you can imagine, living in a culture that was filled with idols and idol worship. And of course, many believers in that day worked in trade guilds, uh, where, they, where, where they forged and they painted and they polished idols for sale. And uh, one believer uh, who worked as a silversmith came up to Tertullian one time and explained that he needed his job to live. And he wanted Tertullian's approval for working and building these idols. So he said this, he said, I have to make these idols to keep my job, and I need my job to feed my family. After all, somebody will do it anyway, and I have to live. And Tertullian said to him, must you live? That's a pretty penetrating answer, isn't it? Especially in these days of compromise in which we live. Tertullian held that a Christian really has only one must in life. We must be faithful to Jesus Christ, come what may, live or die. There are no ifs, reservations, or alibis uh, to that. And the same is true for you and for me. Think about this. You don't have to live and I don't have to live. We only have to be true and faithful uh, to our master and our creator. That's the great must of all of life, to serve and to live our lives in obedience and worship of the master. Now, say that's the great must of life, but let me also say this, that's also the great joy of life. That's the joy of life. That's what life is all about. We were created by God for God, and life is all about worshiping and being faithful to him. So Tertullian believed in death over compromise. And as I was reading through that treatise again, now this weekend on idolatry that he wrote, he mentions Daniel chapter three and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. He was taught by Daniel chapter three that death should be chosen over compromise. And and the chapter teaches us today the same thing as well, that there's no other God, there's no God but God, and the great must of life is to be faithful to Him and to worship Him alone. That is the timeless truth we find here in Daniel chapter 3. Now, in, in Daniel, as we look at this book, this is the first of four chapters dealing with individuals, Chapters three, four, five, and six. And of course, we see three men here, three individuals in this chapter. Now I've got four keywords to unpack this chapter this morning: proclamation, pressure, protest, and then protection. But another way to outline this that I love is to outline it in these four statements. They did not bow, they did not bend, they did not budge, and they did not burn. That's a good way to look at this chapter. So, the story opens here with proclamation, and we see that these men didn't bow. Now, there's no way for us to know for sure how much time elapses between Daniel 2 and Daniel 3. Many believe that the events in Daniel chapter 3 happened not long after chapter 2 in the early years of Nebuchadnezzar's reign while he's still trying to consolidate his empire. Um, He's a a young king, if that's true. He's still trying to secure his grip on power, so he brings all these officials there and demands their loyalty and their allegiance. Now, others believe that chapter 3 happened about eight years after Daniel chapter 2, and the reason for believing that is we know that in that year there was a serious uh, coup attempt against Nebuchadnezzar. So people tried to overthrow him. And it may be that after that failed coup attempt, Nebuchadnezzar summons all these provincial rulers and all these vassal kings to Babylon for a loyalty oath to make sure something like that doesn't happen again. But he was demanding that these rulers submit to his authority in a ceremony of allegiance. But either way, no matter the timing of this event, this is a pledge of loyalty or allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar, to the state there, to Babylon, and to his gods. And if you read this chapter 11 times, you're going to find the word worship. So above everything, what you have here in this chapter is a worship service. 11 times you have the word worship, and 11 times you have the word image used of this golden image. Now, what was this statue that Nebuchadnezzar set up? Some think it's a deification of, of Nebuchadnezzar others would say it's an image of one of Nebuchadnezzar's gods. What I think it probably was, was an image of one of his gods that probably just happened to look like Nebuchadnezzar. They did that a lot in those days. They'd build an image of one of their gods that just happened to have a likeness uh, to them. But either way, again, it's, this is all gold. It's, it's a, it's all gold statue. Now, where did Nebuchadnezzar get the idea of a statue of gold? Remember last week, if you were with us, he has this dream, this nightmare, and he dreams about a great statue. The head's gold, the chest and arms are silver, the belly and thighs are brass, the legs are iron, and the feet and toes are of iron and clay. And you remember when when Daniel interprets the dream, he says, you, O king, you are the head of gold. But after you, there'll come another kingdom, and and the, the, the metals there represent a succession of Gentile kingdoms that will rule over Israel. Now, Nebuchadnezzar thinks about this. When he makes a statue, what does he make it all of? It's all gold. In other words, I'm the head of gold, but I'm not just a head of gold. This thing is going to be gold from head to toe. So it's an act of defiance against the dream in the last chapter. It's Nebuchadnezzar's rebuttal to God's view of history he's not content to be the head of gold. He wants it to be head, uh, gold from, from head to toe. He wants to make the head of gold as permanent as possible. So in doing this, he's basically saying, I will never be diminished or replaced. I'm not just going to be some footnote in history. So he builds this statue of all gold. Now, it may have been made of wood and covered with gold, but either way, that would have been a lot of gold. Now, one thing I just want to note here to you, if you read through this chapter on your own, and I hope you'll do that this week, maybe just sit down and read through this chapter again, but you'll find 10 times the word set up. He set it up. He set this statue up, the statue that he set up. And what I think that's doing is, is basically in the book of Daniel, it's kind of mocking Nebuchadnezzar and those who bow down to this image. Because it's emphasizing over and over again, they took this thing and they made it and they set it up and then they bowed down and worshiped it. And think of the folly and the insanity of bowing down to something that you set up yourself. So it's almost as if Daniel, as he's writing this, is really poking fun at the folly of Nebuchadnezzar and those who bow down to this image. But it's set up on the plain of Dura. We don't know where that is exactly. The word Dura means a walled place. Uh, Some believe they found a location about six miles southeast of the city of Babylon uh, where this took place. But they construct this statue, and it's uh, 90 feet tall and nine feet wide. That's a humongous statue, nine stories tall. Now, if it's 90 feet tall and only nine feet wide, that's pretty out of proportion for a statue of a person. So some people think it may have been like an obelisk, kind of like the, the Washington Memorial or something like that, or the Washington Monument. But also, it, it could have been built on a pedestal, so the statue itself may not have been 90 feet, but including the pedestal and the statue was 90 feet tall. And so that would make it more proportional since it's just nine feet wide. But whatever the construction of it, it's an awesome site. It's nine stories tall of gold shimmering there in the sunlight on the plain of Dura. Now, verse 2 gives us everybody that's invited. Seven classes of individuals are designated. This is every level of government. This is the the who's who, the mover and shakers of Nebuchadnezzar's empire. But you'll notice in verse 2, you have the invitees, and you'll notice in verse 3, you have the attendees, and it's the same list. Back then in Babylon, there was uh, no RSVP, right? If you were invited, uh, you had to show up and attend. So they're all there gathered together. And Nebuchadnezzar has a praise band out there to play some worship music to kind of create a great environment for this ceremony. And if you read down through this passage again four times, you'll have all these instruments there repeated. So this accentuates the pomp and the ceremony. And again, I think the music is there because music produces emotion. And it has a a powerful psychological effect, and so he has this music to to move them, uh, to bow down to the image. And then in verse 6, he says, "...but whoever does not fall fall down in worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire." Now, when I was a little boy, we'd hear this story, they'd always talk about, you know, he builds this furnace to, to throw anyone in who won't obey but probably these furnaces were already around in that area. This is probably a brick kiln. Um, They were called an updraft brick kiln. They were open in the top where you could control the airflow to to make it hotter. Uh, The area around Babylon would have been littered with brick kilns. Think about this, the city of Babylon, they used about 60 million bricks to build the city of Babylon. It's a lot of bricks. And they were made out of uh, uh, sun-dried clay And after they were dried in the sun, they'd be put in these brick kilns that were heated to about 1,500 degrees. So there's one of these brick kilns that's nearby. And so that's this fiery furnace that he's going to throw them in, throw anyone in who fails to worship this image. And verse 7 at that time, and all the people heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, sultry bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshiped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. They fall down like cut timber. I mean, they go down like a bunch of dominoes before this image. Now, before we move on to the next point, there's something I want to, a point I want to make, and I didn't know where to put it in, so I'll just put it in here. But All of this here in chapter 3 is a literal event that took place long ago that we learn lessons from, but it's also a prophetic foreshadow. It's a preview of the end times. Here Nebuchadnezzar is the first king of the times of the Gentiles, and what does he do? He builds an image that people have to bow down to or be killed. The final ruler of Gentile world power is the Antichrist, and in Revelation 13, what does he do? He makes an image that everybody in the world has to bow down to a likeness of himself. And if they don't bow down to it, they're going to be killed. And here in Daniel 3, God delivers Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who failed to bow down. When you go to the book of Revelation, God protects a Jewish remnant of 144,000 Jewish people who will not bow down to that image in the future. They're going to be delivered and protected by God as well. So, all of these chapters, even these narrative chapters in Daniel, have a prophetic foreshadow to them. They, they look ahead. They're a preview of what's coming. And again, uh, we can see today with the globalism and the way our world is moving today, how this world ruler could be not too far off in the horizon, who's going to come and do these unspeakable things uh, during the end times. Well, the next word in our outline here is the word pressure. So they didn't, they didn't bow, we're going to see that in a moment, but they also don't bend. Now verse 8, it says, for this reason at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. Now when it says there they brought charges, literally in the, in the Aramaic here in the language it says, they ate the pieces of the Jews. Uh, they, they, they ate them piece by piece, that's how uh, angry they are, it's like they're gnashing them with their teeth. And notice they call them the Jews, and down in verse 12, they're going to say there are certain Jews who have appoint, appointed over the administration of Babylon. So there's an anti-Semitic strain here in this, but also they're jealous of these men because uh, they've been promoted by God. And we see here, if you stand for God, this culture will try to eat you up. And we're seeing that more and more in these days. And we see here that promotion quickly turned to Persecution. Remember, at the end of chapter 2, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, they are uh, promoted with Daniel. And oftentimes, the distance between promotion and persecution is not a very great distance. Um, They're praised and promoted in chapter 2, persecuted here in chapter 3. And in our country here today, Christianity and believers were promoted not that long ago. They were admired and, and respected but it's quickly turned to mocking and to persecution in our culture. Things are changing at lightning speed. We all see it politically, culturally, morally. And I think more and more in our culture, we're going to face situations where we have to make choices to stand up and stand out or to sit down and shut up. We're having to navigate an increasingly hostile society. We're being pressed into the mold of our culture and we're being pressed to conform to not stand up or speak out or stand out in any way. Um, O.S. Hawkins, who's a a well-known Baptist preacher, he said this some years ago, and and see, see if you don't believe this is true in our culture. He says, the world around us is very anxious to persuade Christians to conform. It cannot tolerate the conspicuousness of those who do not, and before it it attempts to ruin them, it tries to persuade them to be the same as everybody else. There's something built into the world that makes it anxious to see the Lord's people conform. It is perplexed and troubled by those who will not bow down to the things to which it bows down. It cannot understand those who have different values. It is particularly disgruntled by those who worship and love the invisible God before anyone or anything else. It would sooner persuade them than punish them, but if it cannot persuade them, then it most certainly will punish them. In fact, the threat of punishment is part of its argument in persuasion. And that's what we see happening um, in our culture today. And there's a lot of bowing down, a lot of bowing of the knee, and a lot of kneeling today in our culture. But we need to kneel to God alone. That's what the Scriptures would tell us. We need to stand up and stand out in a culture uh, that tries to silence us. Back in uh, 1776, when the Declaration of Independence was signed, most of you have seen a copy of that, Maybe you've seen the original in in Washington, but John Hancock's signature is huge on on that document. You you all probably know that. In fact, that's why they say today when you're signing something, put your John John Hancock, you know, right here. It's almost become synonymous with the signature. But somewhat… there's a lot of different ideas and and, uh, kind of… Uh, Views out there about why he did that. Someone has said that after he did it, someone asked him why he signed it in such large, large uh, handwriting, and he said, "I didn't want the king to have any problem finding my name." I like that. But in the musical play 1776, it has Hancock saying that he made it so large so that Fat George could read it without his glasses. He's referring, of course, to the king of England. But I like that because John Hancock was not afraid in those days when his life was on the line to to stand up and to stand out. It's a lot like these three men here in Daniel chapter 3. Now, down in verse 13, the heat is turned up on these three men. Everybody's watching and listening. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, is it true Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image I've set up? So they refused obviously to worship this image. Everybody had bowed down, but they're standing alone. And it's difficult to stand alone. We all know that. And it's especially difficult for young people. And I want to encourage all of you here to take a stand in whatever sphere God has placed you in uh, for Jesus Christ and do it courageously. Because in this case here, these were first and second commandment issues. have no other gods before me. Don't bow down or worship any graven image. In other words, this is a first and second commandment issue for these men. They're being commanded to violate those commandments. And everybody else bowed down. But these men would rather face the anger of Nebuchadnezzar than the righteous jealousy of God. And so they kept faith with their own faith. Now, one thing I've always wondered about as I read this story is why didn't Nebuchadnezzar see the three young men standing? Why do men have to come tell him, hey, there's these three guys who didn't bow down? Now, we don't know the answer to that. We don't know the logistics of the event. That may be that Nebuchadnezzar was seated in such a way that he couldn't see everybody. We really don't know. But whatever the reasons, these Chaldeans have to run, and they give Nebuchadnezzar the news. And the other question everybody always asks is, where's Daniel, right? We always want to know uh, what happened to Daniel in all this. Well, there's several plausible explanations. He may have been traveling and away on business for the king. Um, He may have been administering the palace in the king's absence. Um, To me, the best view probably is that Daniel's loyalty was unquestioned. Nebuchadnezzar knew him and trusted him, and he was not required to be a part um, of this ceremony. But whatever the reasons, we know that if Daniel had been there, he would not have bowed down. And you say, well, how do you know that? Well, read Daniel chapter 6. When he gets thrown into the lion's den for failing to obey the king. So if he got thrown into a lion's den and was willing to do that in chapter 6, we know that he would have been no different here in chapter 3 if he would have been there with his friends. So they're being challenged here to break the first two commandments. You you know, you and I face our idols today as well. It's no different. Someone said this years ago, the human heart is an idol factory. We manufacture idols in our hearts. We all face the temptation today to bow to our idols. And an idol is anything that we elevate to either be above God or, think about this, even alongside God in our hearts. Whatever we trust and we love most, that is our idol. That's what we worship. One person put it like this. This is a really good quote. You'll want to remember this today's idols are more in the self than on the shelf. That's a good quote. You know, back then the idols were on the shelf, right? These gods of wood and stone and gold and silver. But our idols today are not so much on the shelf as they're in the self. We have a lot of idols today. One of the main ones, obviously, is money. Jesus said, you can't serve God and money. You'll love the one and hate the other. You'll hold to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. Somebody said our coins here in the U.S. read in God we trust. Someone has suggested we should alter it to read in this God we trust. And there's a lot of people doing that. But it's all kinds of things. Hobbies, golf, sports, entertainment, food, technology, education, pleasure and, and sexual pleasure, personal appearance. Some people are just so focused on their personal appearance. It's what they think about day and night. You know, another one i I think about today is politics a lot of people who are believers think more about politics and talk more about politics than they do about the things of god look if, if you could get a lot of believers to channel their excitement and their passion about politics into the gospel and the things of god we might get somewhere a lot of people are way more passionate about those kinds of things and here's a good test when you're by yourself there's nothing else you have to think about What do you think about? What comes into your mind? Would you just by yourself, nothing you've got to think about driving along in the car? Do you you think often about God and about spiritual things and praying for brothers and sisters in Christ who have needs? Do the things of God just come to your mind often and frequently? Or when you're by yourself and you have nothing else you have to think about, does your mind always go to your hobby or to sports or to entertainment or to politics or to pleasure or to power, whatever it may be? Danny Aiken made this comment. This is, this is another good one to remember. When a good thing becomes a God thing, it becomes a bad thing. That's a great statement. When a good thing becomes a God thing, it becomes a bad thing. And there's a lot of good things, if we're honest, sometimes in our lives that become a God thing. When they become a God thing, they're a bad thing. Wendy Witter, in her commentary on Daniel, says this, Perhaps the most pervasive idol is human autonomy the right to do what we want, how we want, when we want, with whomever we want. If something makes us happy, we're entitled to it. If something makes us unhappy, we're entitled to get rid of it. Human autonomy is the God of gods, and we worship it fervently. Think about your own life. Human autonomy, just to be able to do what I want, it's the God of gods, and we worship it fervently. Then she says this, Not even to save their skin would Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego entertain the possibility of replacing God. We do it for far less. It's a challenging statement. We need to search our hearts this morning for what are the things that are rooting their way into our lives that we're bringing alongside God or above God in our hearts and in our minds. Well, Nebuchadnezzar in verse 15 gives these uh, three young men a mulligan. He gives them a do-over, if you will, a second chance. He says, if you're ready at the moment, you hear the sound of the horn, and you listen to all the instruments again. But if you will not worship, you will immediately be cast in the midst of a fire, a furnace, of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? So he throws down the gauntlet, its bow or its burn, And these three men stand. And we ask ourselves, how were they able to stand in this situation? One thing is, I think, they had built a reservoir of commitment. There was an accumulated obedience in their lives. And that's one of the things that allows you and allows me to stand in difficult times. We need to build up a reservoir, an accumulated reservoir of commitment and obedience to God. So when times of crisis come, we can draw on that and be able to stand. Think about back in chapter 1, these men had stood with Daniel. They'd laid a marker down. They'd passed smaller tests along the way so they could pass this test. But I think another thing that enabled them to stand is there were three of them. It's easier to, to stand when you have brothers or sisters in Christ that are there standing in solidarity with you. So these are three good, godly, gutsy men, and they stand together and they strengthen one another. And you and I need other believers in our lives to help strengthen us as well. And I hope you have those kinds of people in your life, fellow believers that love the Lord like you do, that you can lock arms with. And that's the importance of fellowship together here in the local church. Well, now in verse 16, this standoff escalates to a fever pitch. We come here to what I call the protest. So they didn't bow, they didn't bend, and now we're going to see they don't budge. And here in verses 16 to 18 is the only time these three Hebrew men speak in this chapter. And I love this. There's no need for a long discussion, no waste of time, uh, no need for negotiations. They don't have to mull it over. They don't try to work out a compromise. I love that in verse 16 they said, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. We don't need to discuss our obedience to God or try to rationalize it um, in some way. And I love that. You and I don't need to rationalize or think about or discuss our obedience just to obey God. Now, they could have rationalized this in a lot of ways. There are multiple reasons for compromise. First of all, they could have said, well, you know, he's not asking us to deny Yahweh. We don't really have to deny Yahweh. We just have to bring this other God in alongside Yahweh. They could have said, well, you know, we only have to bow down once. I mean, we're not going to become lifelong idolaters. You know, it's just a a one-time deal. Now, they could have thought to themselves, you know, the, the, the Jews need friends in high places. We're in places of influence for God, and God needs our influence here in government. And if we die, that influence is going to be lost. They could have thought, you know, Nebuchadnezzar's been good to us. We can't be ungrateful and unappreciative for how he's treated us. Or this is my favorite one, and this is the one that I think many of us would have been tempted to adopt. We can bow the knee, but we don't have to bow in our hearts. I mean, this is just an empty ritual. So I'll bow down, but I won't really mean it when I do it. Not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They don't make justifications for this idolatry. They don't succumb to the pressure to cave in. There's a lot of excuses you and I can make in our lives today to compromise, to fail to stand up and stand out for God. But compromising with the truth is never right. In fact, it's deadly. There's a story I read a while back about a city, a, a city family and they wanted to go out and live the country life in the open spaces. So they bought a Western ranch and some friends came to visit them not long after they'd moved in and asked them what they'd named the ranch. And the father said, well, I wanted to call it the Flying W. My wife wanted to call it the Suzy Q. One of our sons liked the Bar J, and the other preferred the Lazy Y. So we compromised and called it the Flying W, Suzy Q, Bar J, Lazy Y Ranch. And their friend asked, well, where are all your cattle? And the man said, well, none of them survived the branding. <laughs> <laughs> Compromise can be deadly, right? You know, the old saying is, you know, most accidents happen in the middle of the road. And so these men here, they're not going to compromise. And they don't compromise because they know two things. They know God is sovereign, and they know the Scriptures. They know the Scriptures. They know Exodus 20, first commandment, have no other gods before me. The second commandment, don't bow down, don't make any graven image or likeness of me. So they know the Scriptures, but they also know the sovereignty of God. I love this in verse 17. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. One way or another, we're going to get out of this. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, we're not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Now, those words there, but if not, those are inspiring words. We believe God is able to deliver us, but if not, We're not going to bow down to your image. That is gritty and gutsy faith that these men have. They would rather die than deny. They would rather burn than bend or budge. And you know, the Bible says about God, the God we serve, our God is a consuming fire. When you think about it, for you and for me, that's the fire we really need to be concerned about. And that's the fire that these three young men were concerned about. They were concerned about the God that they serve, who's a consuming fire. And they have a bold belief in God, but notice it's not presumptuous. They believe God is able. They know His power. But there's no doubt about that. But they're unsure about God's purpose and His plan. So they're not questioning God's ability to deliver them. They're placing themselves in submission to God's will and His plan. So these are men of faith, but they're not men of presumption. And I like that. A lot of people today go around kind of demanding that God do certain things, you know, do miracles for them and all these other things. These men here are men of faith, but they're not men of presumption. They know God has the power to do it, but they don't know God's plan and God's purposes. What matters to these men is not deliverance, but obedience. That's what matters to them. Reminds me of about a thousand years later, uh, the great reformer Martin Luther, when he stood there at the Diet of Worms in Germany in 1521. He was answering for, for breaking the doctrine of the Catholic Church. And remember, he closed his testimony with those famous words, Here I stand. I cannot do anything else. God help me. And that's exactly what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do. Here we stand. We cannot do anything else. God help us. These men are a great example of faith. They hoped for a miracle, but they didn't demand one. They left everything in the hands of God. And you and I need to remember that. We go to God, and we ask God, and we want our prayers to be answered, but we have to say, but if not. We want to live a long life and have good health, but if not. We want our children and our families to prosper, but if not, we want to see miracles happen, but if not, you see, God is still sovereign in your life and my life, whether the result is triumph or tragedy. If these three men would have been incinerated in that brick kiln, God would have been just as sovereign. He's just as sovereign in your life and my life, whether we experience triumph or we experience tragedy. But the main point here is that these men would rather die on their feet than live on their knees and compromise. So I thought about it this week. I was reminded of that movie Glory back in 1989. There's a scene there where there's an all-black regiment of soldiers going out to fight a battle the next day. There's a man, uh, there's Sergeant Major John Rollin, and uh, Morgan Freeman plays his character. They're going to go out the next day to battle. I know many of them will be killed, and he prays this prayer. They're, They're a prayer group there. He says, Lord, we stand before you this evening to say thank you. And we thank you, Father, for your grace and your many blessings. Listen to these words. He says, now I run off, leaving all my young young'uns and my kinfolk in bondage, left his family behind in slavery. But I'm standing here this evening. Heavenly Father, ask your blessings on all of us so that if tomorrow is the great getting up morning, if tomorrow we have to meet the judgment day, oh, Heavenly Father, we want you to let our folks know that we died facing the enemy. We want them to know that we went down standing up. What a great statement. And that's true of of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They want to go, if they go down, they want to go down standing up. And really, I think the real miracle in this chapter is verses 17 and 18. Even if these men had been consumed in the fire, the real miracle in this chapter would have happened just the same, because the real miracle is their willingness to face this fiery furnace without bowing the knee uh, to this golden image. Well, that brings us finally to this last word here, the word protection. So, they didn't bow, they didn't bend, they didn't budge, and now we're going to see they did not burn. (laughs) This is the climax of the story. Verse 19, Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath and his facial expression was altered. The the word uh, image for the golden image is found 11 times in this chapter, but this is the only time it's not used of the image, the golden image, and it's used of his face. Literally, you could translate verse 19, the image of his face was changed you got this image there to bow down to, but now the image of his face has changed, and he comes unglued and throws a royal fit. And someone I read this week said this, it's a toss-up, which is hotter, King Nebuchadnezzar or the furnace? I mean, he's he's angry, and he becomes irrational. Have you ever noticed in your own life when you get really angry, you watch someone else who's angry, anger is irrational? Because he says, heat the, the furnace seven times hotter well, if you really hated these young men and wanted to torture them, what should you do? Make it seven times cooler, right? For it'd be kind of a slow roast and they'd suffer. But in his fury and his anger and his irrationality, he says, heat this thing seven times hotter. So they tie them up. Some, some of his best soldiers take them and it says they cast them in. And again, if it's a brick kiln, they, they drop them in down through the top and they're bound there, and they fall into the midst of the furnace. And then verse 24, Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonished and stood up in haste. So, he jumps to his feet, and verse 25, he says, look, I see four men loosed, walking in the midst of the fire without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. So, he jumps to his feet, and he's astounded by four things. There's four men, not three, they're walking around. They're not incinerated. They're unbound. The the, the ropes have been burned off of them. And he sees a fourth man that looks like a son of the gods. Now, some old translations will say a a figure who looked like the son of God, but Nebuchadnezzar would not have known what the son of God looked like. But it's just a, a statement, a son of the gods. In other words, a divine being or a supernatural being that he sees there. Now, this could be an angel, or this could be a Christophany, which is a a pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ. And that's what I like to believe that it is. It's a a um, pre-incarnate, 500 years before Christ is born, almost 600 years, that He comes in a pre-incarnate form, and He's in the fire uh, with these three men. And I think it's interesting here to think about in your life and mine, Christ didn't keep them out of the fire, but He did find them in the fire. And all of us here, uh, we face our own fires. We're not always shielded from the dangers and the distresses of life. But, but think about this this morning, and let this sink into your heart. That fourth man will always come, and he will always walk you in the fires and the flames of this life. The fourth man can always find his people. He knows where you are and what you're going through. And another thing I love about this, the only thing that burned in the fire were the ropes that bound them. Have you ever thought about that? Those ropes, they're ashes in the fire. The only thing consumed in the fire was the one thing that belonged to the Babylonian empire. Nothing else was singed. And it's the same way in your life and my life. We've all seen it in our own lives. but We've also seen it in the lives of other people. That as they, they go through a, a fiery trial of life. Sometimes it's as if the only thing that's really burned are the ropes that bind us. And when we, after that experience, we're freer than we've ever been before. We've all experienced that. And I me, mean, that's a beautiful picture here. So if you're in the, the flames of, of fire right now, of some uh, distress and some trouble that you're going through in life, know that one of the things God wants to do, He wants to burn off off the things that bind you. He wants to make you freer uh, than you've ever been before. These men come out of the fire. They're unsinged, they're unscorched, they're unscended. (laughs) And not one singeing on them, there's nothing scorched. They don't even smell like fire. I mean, you can't go out and light your fireplace without having a little of that smell on you, right? i love to eat barbecue and you go to a barbecue restaurant my wife always knows where i've been for lunch right i mean you always have a little of that scent on you i mean just a little bit of smoke or fire i mean you can always smell it no no smell or no scent of smoke upon them whatsoever and then finally nebuchadnezzar in verse 28 has to eat his words what did he say earlier what god is there who can deliver you out of my hands And now what's he say? Verse 28, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who put their trust in him, violating the king's command, yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap, inasmuch as there is no other God who's able to deliver in this way. The king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar eats his words, and notice here God is the hero of this story. The hero of this story is not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, It's their God. These three men, in verse 30, walk off the stage uh, not to appear again um, in Holy Scriptures or here in the book of Daniel. But every time after this, every time people in Babylon saw them, they stood as a testimony to the power of the living God and what He's able to do. And all the way over in the book of Hebrews, in the great Hall of Faith chapter, it says, by faith they quenched the power of fire. It's an allusion back to Daniel chapter 3. You know, I want you to think about your life today, and I want to think about my life. The only must for us in life is to follow the Master. It's to be faithful to Him and worship Him alone. You and I don't have to live. We don't have to live. But we do have to worship the God Of heaven. And I pray that we'll do that. It'll be the great joy and the pleasure of our lives. You and I go out onto the plain of Dura every week. Tomorrow, wherever you go, wherever I go, we're going to walk out onto the plain of Dura. And we're going to meet people everywhere who will go ahead and who are going to bow down, who are going to give in, who are going to cave in to the idols all around us. What's it going to be for you and for me uh, in our lives? Will we stand up and stand out for Christ and worship Him alone? Well, we do what we were created to do. That's our worldview. We're created by God for God. That's the reason we're here, is to serve Him and to serve Him alone. Back in uh, the days of the Soviet Union, um, Os Guinness tells this story about uh, the Communist Party sending some KGB agents out into the nation's churches on a Sunday morning to go and intimidate the people who were worshiping there. One agent was struck by the deep devotion of an older woman who was kissing the feet of a life-size carving of Christ on the cross. And he asked her, he said, Grandmother, are you also prepared to kiss the feet of the beloved general secretary of our great communist party, to which the grandmother shot back? Why, of course, but only if you crucify him first. What an answer. That fourth man in the fire... 600 years later, the Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth, and He died for our sins. And we trust Him, and we love Him, and we worship Him. And the only one we want to bow down to is the one who was crucified. We bow down and we kiss His nail-pierced feet. And I want to urge you this morning, if you've never trusted in Christ, that's what you need to do this morning. That's where it all starts. He's your only hope. Is to come this morning and to see Jesus Christ as God in human flesh who died in your place on the cross and rose again the third day. And your only hope for life and salvation is found in Him and Him alone. So if you've never done that, as we go to, to prayer now, trust in Him and believe in Him and bow down and kiss those nail-pierced feet of Christ and take Him uh, to be your Savior from sin. Let's pray together. There's an old song that I love. It's uh, got a line in it that says, Lord Jesus, I long to be perfectly whole. I want you forever to dwell in my soul. Break down every idol, cast out every foe. Now wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Our Father, we come to you today. We long to be perfectly whole. We want you to dwell in our soul. So we pray that you'll cast down every idol from our lives that you'll wash us and that we can be whiter than snow. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for that nail-pierced body where he gave himself for us on the cross. He's the only God that we'll bow down to and the only one we will worship. God, root out of our lives the things that we elevate to be alongside you or above you in our lives. It's insanity that we do it. But, oh God help us to trust you and to follow you alone. Father, send us out of here infused with your strength and your wisdom and your courage. Pray especially for young people in our church who may have to stand alone in difficult situations. Lord, give them the strength and the power of these three Hebrew young men. And may we give them the example to follow. Oh, Father, we commit ourselves to you now this morning. We ask these things in your name. May your name be praised forever. Amen.